Hello and welcome to the Chaos to Clarity podcast, where we hear from incredibly successful and inspirational technology executives and thought leaders about escaping the chaos of building a tech startup and the hard-won lessons of getting to scale. I'm Eric Weiss, a 20-year software industry veteran, an executive coach, and the CEO of the Chaos to Clarity Accelerator. In this show, you will hear about the journey that founders must take to build a successful technology company, but I'll also share my own experience and methods as a leader, a founder, and an executive coach. Let's jump right into it. All right, I'm here with Marcos Rivera, founder and CEO of Pricing.io and author of Street Pricing. How are you doing today? Man, I'm doing terrific. Awesome. Likewise. Well, great to have you on the show today. I've known you for a few years now. You are a super cool guy. I always enjoy talking with you. And, you know, you've become this, like you've become the pricing guy, the, the you know, a, a sort of foremost uh, authority in this space. How did you, how did you find your way here? You know, it's funny because my path wasn't really designed to go down pricing, right? You never really uh, kind of think about, I want to be a pricing guy when you're in college, right? But I ended up here through just a, a bunch of natural things that happened over my lifetime that have made pricing so fun and attractive to me, right? So, you know, you think about my background, right? It's not a typical background. I'm a skinny kid, grew up in the Bronx, uh, had a lot of fun out there, um, you know, getting <laughs> into trouble, but mostly, you know, keeping, um, keeping an eye on my younger mm -hmm. siblings. And so I, I already had this kind of parental kind of you know, responsible side of me that came really young. And so that led me to, all right, well, how do I take this forward and make sure I do something with my life, get out of the, mm -hmm. the Bronx? You know, there's, some will say it's a system that's designed to keep, you know, mm -hmm. the people there, there, mm -hmm. if you know what I mean. So how do you break out of that, that cycle? So got into college and really uh, excelled in things like statistics, calculus, mathematics. I just found it very fun and soothing in a weird way. So my, in my mind, I'd love to take a math test over writing a term paper any day of the week. That's just how I, how I work. Um, and then came the psychology part of it, right? Which dealing with people, people are just really interesting, you know, beings and the way they think and the logic or faulty logic that they have. And it really came in uh, front and center when I was working at mm. McDonald's. A lot of people don't know this about me, but I actually was a kid. I was serving, would you like fries with that? Like all that stuff, right? And say what you want to say about McDonald's, right? But one thing that you learn in working in a restaurant like that is, is about people, like how they work, how they put in their orders, how they react when the order is wrong, how they react when the order is right, the patterns, all those things. They all rush you at the same time ask the same things. And so I started noticing as I'm working there uh, in drive through to the front uh, cash register, like how people really started working. And it really fueled my curiosity. So I started reading little psychology journal papers, and I just love the psychology piece of it. So when, when you start melding this, uh, this numbers and math with with psychology, it kind of mm. ends up um, in, in the middle of, of things like pricing, like monetizing and figuring out how to use the knowledge of psychology and what you're what you understand about how numbers work to really get the best outcome and that's when i started my tech career i was in finance for many years to really hone in those skills 
And yes, I was a pencil pushing nerd with month end <laughs> clothes at the end of the month, like all that stuff, right? A lot of people don't know that either. But uh, taking all that forward, right? And getting into the tech scene, building products for people as a product manager, you got to figure out like, how do you price this thing? Like, how do you figure out what people want and how much money are they willing to pay for it? How much cost went into building this stuff? And how does that change? And how do the business, the profit and economics of everything work out? And I dig it, man. I dig that all the way through. And so it led me to getting really good at pricing, which led me to the private equity firm Vista, which is a very big, uh, prolific investor in the tech space. And I just got better and better at it. And fast forward, you know, leaving the firm and doing my own thing and, and loving what I do. So that's that's how it all came together, man. It wasn't on purpose. It just I just kept rolling. Oh, with it. That's phenomenal. So, yeah, you you. You had some roots, you, you, you learned from it. It sort of made you who you are again, just like a really cool down to earth guy. Um, but you knew that education was the, the path out and, uh, you made the most of it. That's awesome. Um, so actually I have a, I have a similar, well, not my story, but actually, so my dad is from the Bronx as well. And, uh, he grew up, this was actually in the, he, he was born in the thirties. And so he was growing up in the streets of the Bronx during world war II, and it was a messed up time apparently to be anywhere in America or anywhere in the world. Um, but you know, it was a lot of just strife and, and depression and everything like that. And so he just saw a lot of the kids like street kids that he was growing up with, you know, doing drugs. And this was again, back in like the 1940s and stuff, right? A lot of, a lot of, uh, aggression, a lot of depression and whatnot. And he also saw education as the way out. And so his parents were like, you know, they were in the garment business. So like shoe cobblers and seamstress, that kind of stuff. And he just studied his ass off and went to, he went to Columbia. He got a, you know, Ivy League education, became a professor. That actually shaped me, obviously, in, in you know, in my journey um, growing up to the, as the son of, of two professors. But he took me back. So every summer we'd go back to New York City because my grandma was up there. And he took me to the Bronx and it was one of those like, this is where I came from. This is where you don't want to end up. This is why you need to study hard in school. And uh, it was uh, it was definitely formative for me as well. So I, I feel you. Nah, man, that's a great story. I'll give you I'll give you some backstage backstage past stuff, right? So when growing up, so my mother was a single mom raising uh, me and my two younger siblings. Why was she a single mom? Was because my dad was in prison for drug trafficking. Mm. So you talk about a lot of drugs in that area, mm -hmm. right? He got he got caught up in that. And so he wasn't around. So that's what also fueled a little bit more of that responsible side of me. So yes, I had people offer me drugs on the corner of the streets. I had them offer me to join their gang and get into more trouble. And I always kind of sidestepped it and ignored it and, and mm -hmm. ran away from it and didn't jump in because I knew that my mom was working so hard by herself trying to support three kids mm -hmm. and my younger brother and sister, they were depending on me, looked up to me, right? So I couldn't turn my back on all of them and get into gangs and drugs. I had to be there for them. I had to be um, uh, there to help them. So that was a a big part of all that was it just kind of forged me, like my my personality and how I love to help, which is when I'm, even now when I'm digging in with a client, I'm like, how do I help this company break through and grow? Like, how do I help them do it? Like there, there could be jobs on the line if we don't help them grow, right? So how do I do this? I take it. I take it that way. And that's how my firm works with folks too. Because let's, let's be honest, right? Like everyone's trying to solve a problem at the end of the mm -hmm. day. And if you, to really get deep behind the problem, you got to really care about solving mm -hmm. the problem. 
So mm-hmm. that's where it all comes from is we just back in the roots. And sometimes you, people know when you're faking it and when you're not. Mm-hmm. So they know when, uh, when I work with them, I don't fake it. So it's interesting. So, right, so, so pricing is one of these areas that I think a lot of founders certainly overlook. Um, and I think there's a lot of like sort of juju about it where we think we know what we're talking about, but we really don't. We, we, we kind of psychoanalyze uh, these kinds of behavior. You know, we, I think we even might be take some tips from McDonald's and those other places to say, all right, we got to do, you know, it's $12.99 a month, not, and, and, and where we're placing the, the pricing in, in, in the mix of, of options. You know, there's these things, these common tropes, I think that we have about pricing, but I think a lot of us, a lot of founders just really don't understand it. So what are some of the, you know, the common, just obvious mistakes that you see a lot of founders make? Yeah. Everything you said is spot on. There are a lot of, <laughs> there are a lot of mistakes out there and it's not, you know, it's not because we're you know, dumb or not educated or anything like that. It's just, there's some common assumptions that are being made out there, or you're just copying something else that you see work and you want to apply it to your own. Uh, just not a lot of thought or data or any support behind it. You just do it. And I'll be honest with you, right. As a entrepreneur too, like, man, like there's, there's deals you got to close. There's uh, the next release of the product. There's a customer that's mad at you. There's a, like whatever it is going on, mm-hmm. right? And you just got to deal with that stuff head on. And pricing takes a little bit of time and uh, an investment to think about. And you just, you know, you just don't really uh, put it in there. It's just a little bit of like just a juju or a black box. Yeah. And you end up guessing. And guessing, honestly, if I had to pick an enemy out there that I'm trying to go after and just put down, it's mm-hmm. guesswork. Right. Mm-hmm. And the biggest like mistakes that I see entrepreneurs make when they're guessing on their pricing, um, I'll tell you right now, if a lot of them go down this common path of a tiered pricing or some kind of, you know, decent, good plan mm-hmm. and something in the middle than a bigger plan, which is pretty common, known as good, better, best or GBB, I'd say the biggest mistakes I see them make is that entry plan or that low end plan tends to be way too generous way Mm. too much stuff in there. And here's the mistake they're making. The mistake they're making is they think, oh, I'm just going to put a lot more value in this thing than other folks, and they're just going to buy me. But here's what's going on, right? In that entry plan, it's naturally appealing to people who maybe want less, right? Maybe they're more basic needs, or maybe they're just, you know, price sensitive, or frankly, just really cheap. Mm -hmm. Um, Others, just maybe you just need to earn their trust a little bit more before you can charge them more money. So that plan is designed for folks who really, you know, just want less and want to pay less. But if you keep putting more in there, what's happened is the, is that, that the sensation is that I'm only using a small fraction of what I'm paying for. Therefore, I feel like I'm overpaying and I don't want to use it anymore. Hmm. Right. And so the idea is uh, I'm only, you're giving me so much value. I'm only using a small percentage of it makes me feel like I'm overpaying. So it has the opposite effect. So number one big mistake is don't make an, a, a plan that is designed as your entry level or your low level or your uh, price sensitive level to be to have too much value in it. It mm-hmm. actually hurts you more than helps you. On the flip side, the second big mistake I see folks make is that their high-end plan, like the plan, the, the Cadillac, if you will, mm-hmm. tends to be underpriced. They tend to be mm-hmm. a little bit, uh, they hold back on that value up there. And you got to understand when you start offering people that all-in VIP, white glove, like this is the plan for you, they really don't care too much about the price. Like, mm-hmm. Of course, everyone's going to care something because they got to pay you money. I get that. Mm-hmm. But that's not why they're buying. They're buying because they want either some level of expertise, some level of attention or something they can get somewhere else. And they want it and they want it now. So 
Mm-hmm. I always say, if you're looking to raise prices, that's usually the first spot I go is in your higher tier premium, whatever plan that is. And do it systematically, you know, don't go tripling your prices, right? But you can raise them, you know, 15% or so and still actually make out pretty good and see where folks are accepting or folks maybe start squinting a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. But but also on the other end, you got to make sure you step up and deliver. Like that's mm-hmm. the one, that's the moment where you pull out the stops and make sure they're getting all your attention, all your value. So those are the two big ones is way, way too generous in the entry and a little bit too cheap on the, the premium side. So what is the the purpose of the, the lowest tier? Is it to simply capture uh, customers that maybe don't have as big of a need for it or, or as many use cases and keep them there? Or is it simply to entice them and get them using the platform to get them up into a higher tier? It's usually a mix of both with a lean towards the enticing and upgrading. So mm-hmm. the way I look at it, some people are going to be totally happy with the basics and they're going to be fine. They're not going to grow. It's okay. And then some of them mm-hmm. need to be down there. But when I look at someone's pricing and I ask a question about, well, how many folks do you have in your entry plan? They tell me, oh, Marcos, 70% of our audience is hanging out in the entry. I go, aha, uh-huh, there's something wrong here because yeah, you can have 15, 20% hanging out down there, but most of them, they're not mm-hmm. moving up to your other plans. And so the idea is there's going to be an audience that you want to start solving their direct basic use cases first. Here's why I bought it in the first place. I want to get that thing. But once you do that, then they want to naturally expand and do more. And that mm-hmm. is where this is where a lot of folks also, as a third mistake, is that they 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 cut them off too early. You don't let them kind of ease out mm-hmm. of the basic use cases by introducing a little bit of extra either limits of volume or functionality to get them to that uh, extra adjacent use case. Notice I said the word adjacent. Mm-hmm. So it's got to be tangential to what they're doing now. Mm-hmm. And you let them stretch a little bit because now they've already gone beyond what they even originally wanted to do. But then they start reaching those limits. And that's the perfect point to upgrade is because I want to expand and do more. You see, they already got to that mindset that they want to expand and do more. Now it's time to pay more. You don't mm-hmm. charge them before they're ready to expand. You don't charge them more if they're trying to solve the basic stuff mm-hmm. they purchased you for in the first place. That's where that nickel and dimey sensation comes in. Mm-hmm. That's where dissatisfaction comes in. Okay, so if a founder does their analysis and they find out that, man, I've got a lot of people on this low tier how do they, and, and the assumption is then that, okay, they've they've put too much value into that low tier. How do they go about trying to understand what they need to move into a higher tier? Super good question. It gets a little bit deeper into knowing what the hell your customers are doing in the product. <laughs> I'm, I'm chuckling because, man, I ask folks, all right, give me some information on what's going on. Like, how are they using it? Even how many users they have to mm-hmm. how many API calls to what services do they tend to buy? And I get buckets, like nothing. Like they mm-hmm. just tell me, like, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I just, they're in there. And I say, man, it's going to be really tough for you to do value-based pricing if you really don't know where they're getting the value from, how they're getting it, right? Mm-hmm. But, but fast forward to that. Let's say, for instance, they do have an idea of what's going on. What I tend to look for is, a, um, is usage over time is kind of the basics of where to get started. So there's always a, a life cycle when people use something services mm-hmm. or products and they start off somewhere they get up and running and then they they solve those basic things they want to solve whether it's 
you know, send an invoice or coach an employee or, you know, uh, process a medical claim, whatever it is. And then once they get past that, when you look at the usage patterns, you start seeing where some of the volume starts to pick up on. So you mm -hmm. say you have a population of customers and you just look and see like, whoa, really big spike of, of this. This customer has so many more messages than that customer. I'll make, mm -hmm. Just to make up another example. This, uh, this one sends so many emails in the others. This one has so many more users in the others. And so when you start looking at these different, uh, what I call little peaks and valleys of usage, that's where you start picking up on, okay, there's something here where folks are either honestly using the product, not the way it was intended, mm -hmm. trying to stretch a little bit, uh, or they're trying to do something within the confines of the current system that they can do so much easier if they just upgrade. Mm -hmm. And that's, so looking for a pattern of, of usage, whether it's messages or or different calls or people or some or uploads, anything like that, that takes some kind of activity. If you see those spikes coming out in your population, that's your first clue. That's where you start to either introduce um, either a limit to move them up. Remember, mm -hmm. give them a little taste. Now, what does the taste look like? I'll tell you, based on human behavior and how people build habits, people start building habits after about two months, Eric. So mm -hmm. you want to give them a taste, give them a taste to do it for about two months. And mm -hmm. if they can do it for about two months and they start getting that habit, that's where you begin to ease them into the next plan because frankly, they've outgrown the planet they're in, right? That's mm -hmm. really what's going on. So that's, that, that's how I look at it is find those, find those little spikes and then give them enough for two months and then move them up. So you're, you're touching on something, I think that's a big point of debate in the, in the especially, in, well, in the B2B SaaS world, but SaaS in general, and that's around free trials. Um, there's a lot of, you know, with, with product-led growth becoming more and more mainstream, I think there's become more of a debate whether it is a, you know, is it free trial? Is it freemium? Is it free? Is there a free forever tier? Um, what are some of the, the mistakes, again, that you see people making when it comes to choosing some sort of free giveaway. Oh, that is such a hot topic, man. <laughs> such a hot topic. I, I, um, I talk about this a lot with, with many folks and I'll give you the, my, my two cents on it. Right. So freemium and free trial are really acquisition motions right there. You're trying to get folks to be familiar with the value because when humans are familiar with something, they trust it. And if they trust it, they want to buy it. Right. It also answers a lot of unanswered questions in their head. Is this for me? Is this really going to help me? Is this going to be a pain in the ass to use? Like all that kind of stuff, right? So I'm a big fan of freemium and free trials, but I'm not a big fan of those techniques for everything or for everybody. And I'll give you an example. I had a client, true story, right? They, they took an average of about two months to get up and running with configurations and integrations and all this stuff. And it was like like manual, like human horsepower to get all that going. And they wanted to do freaking free trials and freemium. And I'm like, guys, like you, you can't do that if you don't have a very nice, easy, self-service, self-directed way to get into the product. Mm. Don't do that. But they were trying to do it and it was costing them a lot of money and a lot of headache. And so, uh, you know, no surprise, we ended up killing that um, in the new model. But ideally speaking, right, if you want someone to enter the product and get a taste, the product needs to be architected and that experience needs to be designed such that this person can get in with no headaches, no issues, and can start seeing the sensation of the value uh, pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. right? And what I mean by that is you don't need to do freaking 15 things before you can get the value. Yeah. Uh, it can come pretty fast. And everyone underestimates 
like this, the effort to get to value, right? It's a big part of this whole equation. Because man, you put obstacles, enough obstacles to somebody, they're not going to do it. I don't care how cool your product looks. They're not going to get there. So from my perspective, freemium and free trials work really well when um, you give architect the product to label the self-provision, get in there um, with very lightweight, get to some kind of wow moment. And when I say wow, I mean, wow, it's so much easier to do it with your product than it was when I was doing it without your product, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and if you want to get even more specific, Eric, like between freemium and free trial, like I would say when it comes to products that are you can get the value a little bit more independently, right? When you're thinking about how you use it versus uh, network effects. I love freemium for network effects because it really drops the barrier to adopt and the barrier to recommend. Mm-hmm. What I mean by that is people feel weird about recommending something that's going to cost your friend money. Mm-hmm. You know, it just, mm-hmm. it just adds a little bit of, um, uh, of an extra awkwardness to the recommendation because you never want to impose any you know, financial hardship on a friend or, you know, make them spend that hard earned money for something that may not be for them. So when you take that barrier away, you get a little bit more virality going on. Right. And when virality is a big, uh, a big ingredient in your success, freemium tends to work uh, a ton better. Mm. Free trial tends to work where it may be a little bit of a bigger deal size, right? You a little bit more money involved. And, and frankly, once you taste the value in that initial trial, then you're, you're kind of hooked. And once you're in, these are the things that tend to have a little bit of higher retention as well, because it becomes either the backbone or your operating system. It becomes your back office. It becomes your, your marketing hub. It becomes something that you really lean on. Right. Um, but so that's my kind of philosophy around those two things. It's, it's not for everybody freemium if you need a, a network and then free trial. If you, if it's something that folks really need to rely on. Yeah, no, that that really resonates with me as well. I mean, thinking as a consumer, as a as a user of a lot of, well, a lot of software in my life, I would always find, especially when I was running development teams, when we would do any kind of a free trial, I would know right out of the gate that that free trial was going to run out before I even got the thing implemented and can start actually playing with it. And so I would always talk to the sales rep and be like, you've got to extend the free trial. 15 days is not going to cut it. I'm not even going to be able to look at this until the next sprint and it's going to take me this long to get it. And like, then I got to find time to actually start digging in with it. Like, give me at least a month to two months, as you said, before I can even really invest in it. And obviously this is more for like, again, B2B and and sort of software tools, but I I have found a a lot of friction in these, these free trials where, to be honest, I, I think, I think that these, at this date, um, if I see something that's a free trial, I'm just sort of like, now nah, skip it <laughs> or I'll just <laughs> buy it for a month and just, <laughs> you know, be done with it. No, man. I, I actually, you know, it's funny. I just ran into a free trial the other day. That was a five day free trial. Hmm. And I was like, how in the hell are you going to realize if this thing is really for you in five days? I mean, I probably wouldn't even get around to it in five days, right? Just with yeah. all the things people are busy, right? They got, they got stuff going on. So yeah, I think that you don't want to be too stingy. Now, there's another there's another uh, point of view, which is, hey, look, if you give people too long and hang around in there, then they'll, you know, people are people, right? They'll procrastinate and, you know, not even get into the last minute and all that stuff. And, and I get that. That's true. But the way I lean on it is if if you make that that entry point so seamless and that experience quick and easy, 
and you give them enough ample time to get in there and, uh, and, and love it, mm-hmm. I think you're, you want to make sure you lean on the side of giving them a little extra time than cutting them off. And yeah. I'll tell you this right now, if you look at the most common free trials out there, seven day, 14 day, 30 day, you know, seven day pretty much says, look, get, get the hell in and get the hell out. Like, I don't mm-hmm. need you, you know, in here. It's obvious if you need this thing or not. Uh, whereas a 30 day is more, Hey, hang out, have a cup of coffee, check out all the features, you know, take a look around. And then 14, 14 is somewhere in the middle where it tries to balance that a little bit. So that's why 14 tends to be the most common. But even then, like I, I'm like you, man, two weeks just blows by. So I wonder if that starts pushing up to 21 or 30 days more or less. Yeah. Hey everyone, Eric here. So every startup founder on earth is searching for the elusive product market fit. It's the thing that unlocks growth and scale and the thing that separates the successes from the failures. But if I asked you what it meant, could you define it? Could you point at it and measure it? Could you break product market fit down into its essential components and have a systematic way to improve them, to unlock product market fit and get to scale? Probably not. So that's why I created a new tool called the Product Market Fit Scorecard, the ultimate guide to unlocking scale. Uh, It's a free and simple assessment that you can use with your team to break down product market fit into its 10 key factors, identify where your weak points are, and give you clear and concise recommendations to improve. So just go to pmfscorecard.com and download it now. Another thing I'm seeing now too, especially with a lot of product-led growth startups is, is they actually combine the two. They have a free tier and then the trial is to move to the upgraded tier and then you come back down to free. And so that might be something like, so I think for example, Canva, I just did this very recently where I've been using Canva free for, you know, at least a year or more now. And there was finally something where I was like, I need to build a thing right now and they, they want, and I have to upgrade but they're offering me a two week free trial of premium to get that thing and get that thing built that I needed for my, for my accelerator. And I went ahead and did it. And then damn it, I'm, <laughs> yeah, <they got laughs> I'm paying premium now. And I'm like, you know what? Actually, it's kind of nice in here. There's some, some nice features. There's more collaboration and whatnot. I'm like, I actually might hang out a little bit. I'll tell you why that's so beautiful right there. So I, I use Canva too. They did the same thing to me. So that's why I'm laughing too, right? But yeah. <laughs> um, but it's not it's not anything you know underhanded or nefarious. What's going on here is like, you know, hey, instead of starting off with a couple of basic uh, things of content, you know, you start expanding it. There's the use case you needed. So you... They let you go up and taste that. And two psychology things just happen when they did that. Once mm-hmm. is they they took away the risk of you going in and trying that and expanding that use case, which is really nice. So you go in there safely. But then the psychology of losing something versus gaining something. So mm-hmm. we as humans don't like to lose things once we have it. And mm-hmm. so the yanking it away um, is a little bit of a harder thing for you. And so it's better to give it to you and then try to yank it away versus trying to force you to get in and do it. Uh, there's a third one actually just thinking about it as I'm talking, which is the, um, the tendency to try to justify a decision, right? Mm -hmm. So you made a decision, you bought it and you're justifying it. And so you start looking for other ways to use it as well. It's like, Oh, Mm -hmm. check this out. Oh, I could use this. Oh yeah. And expands on that. Right. So all those things all backed by psychology, a lot of fun. I, 
I'm cursed by every single thing someone tells me. I can start breaking down the psychology behind it, but <laughs> that's what happened. And that what you're talking about, I used to call it free trialium, which, but then a friend of mine came, uh, Kyle, he came up with a much better term. He was calling it reverse free trials, which I think mm -hmm. makes more sense than my free trialium. But the idea was um, you go into that free trial. It works both ways, Eric. You can do hang out in the free and then move up into the trial and then hopefully hang, stay there. You could also start in the trial. And if you just don't convert, come back into the free, hang out, nurture down there, and then come back when you're ready. So mm. it works two ways. I love it. I think that technique works super well, especially for PLG or product-led motions and uh, everything I talked about earlier where the morality counts, all those key things. It's a really good technique. So I want to talk about your book a little bit, Street Pricing. Um, Tell me what was the, you know, the motivation to write it. And then, you know, maybe what are like the top five big ideas? Yeah, it's funny because remember I told you a minute ago, I would rather do a math test than write a paper. Yeah. I am not a writer, dude. Like I am not the type of person <laughs> to sit down and just bust out a book. It is hard for me to write something that like a book or even a paragraph. I just have to think. And I just edit about 50 different times, right? Every paragraph. So it was a, a painful thing for me to do but also developmental and growth for me as well. So I'll tell you this, man. I thought, if, let me just put something out there that is going to help entrepreneurs not be so scared of pricing, not find it to be so black box-ish. And I've read dozens and dozens of pricing books. And I'll tell you right, they're all freaking boring. All yeah. of them. Like they will, if you have insomnia, grab a pricing book and read it. Okay. It's just, except for it this is, one. <laughs> except for this one. Because those, I mean, they're so dry, man. And get into economics and economic theory and all that stuff. Like nobody gives a crap about that. It's, they want to know how do they price their product, right? Mm -hmm. So I said, you know what? Why do we have to fake the funk around this? Like, let's just tell them what it takes to really price something. And, and then from there, I thought, well, why does it have to be so damn boring? Like, why can't we just have a little fun? Now, it, growing up in the 90s, in the Bronx, hip hop was, was emerging there. I, I am a hip hop head. I was blasting Tupac and Biggie out of my car all the time, right? Out of my, my pullout stereo for those that remember those things, right? And it's funny because when you, when you remember something like a song, like that song that kind of sticks in your head, it really helps with, with, re, with recall and recognition. So I said, you know what? Why don't we have a little fun and infuse some music in this thing and at the same time, it also helps with recall recognition. It makes the topic a lot more approachable, a lot more fun. And can I pull it off? And everyone told me, what the hell does hip hop have to do with pricing? Don't do that. That's stupid. So I took a, I took a risk. I took a risk. I said, you know what? I'm going to do it anyway. And if they don't like it, they don't like it. Right. But I started um, by locking myself up in a hotel room, Eric, for uh, three days for a weekend. And I just... Remember, I told you I'm not a good writer. So I just voiced everything, you know, voice transcription type stuff. I think I did it in, I don't know, I think it was like Google Docs or something. I just voiced transcription, the whole like outline of the book. I just spoke it, eating, you know, takeout food in the hotel for three days straight, uninterrupted. I just spoke the whole thing out. And then I spent the next months like massaging it, putting structure around it, you know, adding more elements. I interviewed about 12 people. And so I inserted you know, a, a good six interviews in, into the chapters as well. Got a ton of examples, put it in there. And I'll tell you this, it took me three days to write the book, but it took me three years to actually 
write the book, like get it done, edited in shape and all that stuff. Right. And it was through the pandemic and all that, but it was the, the, the hell of editing. Cause when you change something in a book like this, when you change something in one chapter, it may affect what you said in another chapter. And you got to start like, it is just crazy web that I fell into as a rookie author, but I'm glad I did it. I'm glad it got out there. I'm glad it's, it's, it's a, it's an award-winning piece of work now. Mm. And I'm super proud of it. And I, and I tell you, man, it's something that I love the feedback when an entrepreneur emails me at a uh, true story. One CEO said, Marcos, I read your book. I applied what I learned in chapters five and six, and it turned into, um, I want to say he said a 900 K boost for him that day, like real results. Whoa. And so I, that just lights me up every time I hear that. Oh my gosh. That's amazing. I love those kinds of stories, right? Those, those key unlocks. So are there, are there some, you know, big ideas or pillars uh, is there a big framework in the book that you go over? There is, there is, man. So I got, uh, the way I structured the book a little different than a typical pricing book beyond the, the whole hip hop angle and, and having fun with all that banter and, and everything in there. It's really, I put a, a, uh, in the beginning, a quick reference checklist. So look, don't, don't read the whole thing. If you're just fig trying to figure out how to package something, how to bundle something, how to price something, skip to these chapters, boom, 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 boom. So I just gave people an automatic skip. And I think that's what helped uh, a lot of folks start absorbing the book in different pieces because pricing is something you go back and reference over time. Mm -hmm. You don't need to you know, read and become an expert. In the center of the book is the 5Q framework. It's the five-step approach that my, I take, my firm takes. It just makes pricing so much easier, right? Everyone always wants to jump to the number. And that's actually one of the last things you figure out, right? You need to understand... The, you know, the package, the structure, who you're really selling to, who you are as a company and what you really stand for. I know it sounds kind of kind of cheesy and hyperbolic, but in, in the end of the day, if you don't have clarity on what you really want to do, pricing gets super, super hard. Mm -hmm. And so it really breaks it down into those small little mini steps. I put a lot of real examples in there to support the framework. And I put a lot of checklists to kind of help you with a shortcut just to give people something. Like, I just want a, an entrepreneur to take a nugget and apply it and use it and then just kind of build from there. Hmm. So what are the, what are the five Q's? Yeah. So the five Q, which stands for five questions. Mm -hmm. If I had to break it down to you, right. Question number one always starts with why, right. And not, not to, not to get all Simon Sinek about this thing. Right. And he's always about the why. <laughs> right. But, and, and I think people get upset when you start, you know, digging too much into the five whys behind things, but the why is really around, getting, you know, standing in front of a mirror and getting very clear and very deliberate about what you want to do. And the idea here is if I'm a company that wants to gain a ton of market share, if I'm a company that wants to move into different geographies, if I want to really um, expand what I sell to my customers, cross-selling them, upselling them, like whatever the hell it is, it really is going to drive you for the next few years. You got to get super clear on that. Are you the premium play? Are you the cheap guy on the block? Like, what are you? Mm -hmm. And when you're, when you're playing both ends of the field, when you're trying to be everything to everyone, I, that's, that to me is the first red flag that you're never going to figure out your pricing, right? If that, so that why, that first thing is all about who you are, how you're going to grow, right? So that's the big one there. And I, I take folks through like the break it down to piece by piece on how to get there. And in that chapter, it's called a nothing but a G thing, which is a nothing but a growth thing, which by the famous song, obviously, but yeah. it goes into all that. Like, let's get serious about how you're going to grow. Let's break it down. Then we get into the who the second question in 5Q is who. So you, once you're not the why, now it's the who, which 
customers out there, who is more important to you to win than others? Because you honestly can't serve everybody. So let's get down to it. Like describe them. What do they look like? How do they act? Why do they buy you? What's problems or pain they're trying to solve? And how do you break them up or group them? So that way, you know who you're selling to. And that's that's a, uh, the segmentation thing on how to look at your customers and understand their journey. Under, under invested, man. Like people just don't think about it enough. And that's where people, uh, when it comes to pricing, they're a little bit murky because, well, I can kind of serve or want to serve a lot of people. And so if, if, if everyone looks the same, then it's hard to bring up a model that can serve audiences really well, yeah. which takes us to the third uh, question, which is the what. So first you start with the why, then the who, then the what. And the what is what experience do you want to give these folks? And I say experience on purpose because it's not just about a bunch of services or a bunch of list of features. It's about how they get the value that you want to give them. And that is from how they discover, how they get trained, how they configure all, yes, all the features too, but how you service them, how you um, support them, like when they have a problem, like all that stuff matters. And people don't think about it in that holistic way, but it's not just, you know, if you think about getting from point A to point B, you know, the, the public bus will get you there and your uh, Ferrari will get you there, but in very different ways, right? And so you have to think about how they get that value over time. That's the big, that's probably one of the most important ones there is figuring out that experience that you want to price, which then takes you to the fourth question, which is, okay, how? Why, who, what, it's all clear. Now you get to the how, which is how much, how much should I charge these folks, right? It's the mechanics of the model come into play. And it's so much easier once you have all those three pieces lined up. Mm-hmm. And that, that talks about, do I charge them by the user? Do I charge them on a flat subscription? What's the price point that keeps me competitive? How do I make sure sales can win? How to make sure people get into the product super easily? So it's all in that price, go to market, and how do I figure out billing, licensing, all that stuff is in that how. Mm-hmm. And the final one is which. Probably the most overlooked in this whole model, which part of my pricing is working and which part is not. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that's that iterative nature of pricing that you got to keep on staying on top of the model and evolving it. Because if you keep releasing new features or introducing new services or entering new markets, guess what? Customers are changing. Your products are changing. Competitors are changing. I mean, look what happened in 2020. The whole world changed. You got to stay on top of that model. Keep it moving. So that's the final one there. Start with why, clear up the who, design that what, then you figure out the how and you stay on that which to keep it going. That's the 5Q, man. That's in the middle of the book. I love it. Bravo. What I love about it as well is that it's it's it resonates a lot with a lot of the models that I teach my accelerator. Um, and, you know, I'll have you come and, and, and talk to the folks. So I think this is going to settle right in with them. Um, I do a, a different model, but around product market fit. And we I talk about these sort of 10 different factors but I always preface it by saying, yeah, like you need to know your identity, your strategy, right? How you're going to approach the market. Everything that I do is all about customer centricity. So it's about, I mean, the, the podcast as well as the accelerator is chaos to clarity. So I'm all about finding clarity on who you are and, and how, you, how you're going to win, how you're, you know, um, understanding your customers and the problem you're solving better than anybody. But I'm also this agile evangelist. So I'm all about these feedback loops. So I have this product market fit scorecard, which again, is meant to be this thing that you're running every quarter or so to try to assess what's working and what isn't. Um, and, and so I run this through with, with folks in the accelerator. We kind of assess these things, areas that are working and that aren't working, 
find our, our top priorities and then say, okay, these are the things that we're going to focus on over the next few months. And here's how we're going to, you know, how we're going to tackle them. Um, so I, I, I just love it. I love that you've got that. Uh, and, and I know you kind of like disqualified it a little bit by saying, oh, you know, it's, it's frou-frou or whatever. Um, but no, the essence of clarity uh, and the essence of leadership really is about having that, that conviction about who you are and who your customers are and how you're going to approach the market. To me, that's just strategy, right? That's just having a clearly defined persona, a clearly defined value proposition, a clearly defined competitive advantage. Um, and then again, yeah, when you talk about the experience, you're right. It's like, do we want to be the white glove service or do we want to be the no frills, um, you know, scalable, low cost option? Um, and based on all of those variables, which that's what strategy is, is kind of defining all those variables, the natural best choice of your pricing, of your, of your solution, of your go-to-market are all going to kind of resolve themselves. So that's actually what I call creating product market fit. So what you're talking about here is basically the same thing, just, you know, for, uh, for a slightly different dimension. So that's right. Beautiful. That's right. It's, it, and man, I tell you right now, like how many folks I talk to and, they really don't know, right? I mean, they're just in it and they're they're selling and they're hustling. I get it, right? You gotta you gotta work hard and, and do what you gotta do. But sometimes I find that some I'm gonna say it out loud here, right? Because people need to hear this. Some people are scared to make to make that choice to make that stand. Mm-hmm. Who are you? Well, I don't want to go too much on this end because I still want to appeal to that end and so on and so forth. I might lose. I might I might not uh, uh, you know gain my gain my goals if I ignore that section. You know what? It takes a lot of courage to say, I am not the right fit for that group. Yeah. A lot of courage, right? The, the anti-persona, like who yes. you're really not good for. Yes. I force people into that. It's uncomfortable though. I'll tell you, they, they don't like it, but I force them into it because it's okay to not be a good fit for something. Like it's mm-hmm. fine, right? And, mm-hmm. and they're, you know, they say there's riches and niches and all that other fun stuff. That's true. But my point is you got to be proud and you have to declare what you're what you stand for and who you really want to serve mm-hmm. and i'll tell you what if things change in the business if you get better at something else or something expands whatever it is and you want to pivot or change or update that's okay that's part of the journey man right so um don't feel like you have to know it all and know all the answers here and now right so yeah. that's i'm glad you said that because i think it just people need that nudge right to help them out yeah Oh, it's me. I, I love that you use the term anti-persona as well, because I use the same exact terminology. And the way I describe it is, you know, we, we obviously go through this exercise to identify our, our ICP, our ideal customer profile. Um, and, you know, we always struggle to kind of really hone it in and filter it down uh, narrowly enough so that we can have a very clear strategy about how we're going to serve them. And then there's always this, you know, this other persona that is very close to it, but, and and it's so tempting that we want to go after it, but by going after it, we're diluting our service. We're diluting our offering for our ICP, right? And so maybe for, you know, example, it could be based on a certain, um, you know, size of company or certain uh, stage or in, you know, stage of growth, uh, especially in the B2B space. But um, I've got so many clients that that want to have this broad persona because they think that's what investors want, right? Everyone wants to be a unicorn. We need to have this huge market. Uh, and so we can't afford to to narrow down. And there's this, and I always look for it. I always say, okay, show me what your persona looks like today. 
And let's find that dimension. And we basically have to analyze the, the data to say who are highest retaining customers and our lowest retaining customers. And I'll find that dimension and say, okay, split it. That is your anti-persona. You are you have to avoid them at all costs. You are not going to market to them. You're going to filter them out of all your targeting. If they come after you, you're going to tell them you are not a good fit. Go, you know, here's a referral to something else. Because by, by letting them in, because they're going to be vocal, they're going to be noisy, they're going to suck up all your resources, and they're, again, going to dilute the service that you can provide to, to your best possible customer. Um, so I love that you say that because, yeah, again, it happens in pricing, happens in product, happens in sales. It's it's very insidious. It, it, it is, man. I love the how you use dilute. Dilute is exactly what's going on. And I think when you have that convo with the, with the founder or the leader, you know, sometimes it can get a little uncomfortable. It's like, ooh, you're really telling me to say no to uh, someone out there who's willing to pay me money for this? Mm -hmm. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly what we're saying, right? And it's it feels uh, it's a little bit of a shift for them, but and sometimes they're people who are paying you money right now. You actually have to cut off some existing revenue. Oh, that's even yeah, that can get even harder for some folks. It's like whoa, whoa, yeah. whoa, whoa, wait a minute. You mean yeah, that's what we mean. So, so I have a, a client um, in the they were in the sort of real estate mortgage space, and they they suffered from this problem where they had trained a sales team to go after any and all opportunities. Um, and they were basically spending an enormous amount of resources going after these very small kind of mom and pop shops, right? And those folks were, again, very vocal, complained a lot, churned very heavily. And so even though they had a ton of transactional revenue, right, their, their, their customer growth was, was very high, their retention was terrible, right? And so when they actually went to raise a round of money, they got turned down because the VC said, you have got this incredibly inefficient uh, sales process here where you're spending all this time and money say, you know, selling and marketing to these customers. And, you know, it was like 25% of them are churning out within, you know, however many months. So when we give you money, you're basically telling me you're just going to burn a quarter of it at best, right? As you start to scale up. And so they made them go back and they had to go. And what they identified was there was a certain size of, of target that they had to say no to had to retrain all the sales team. They had to give up a lot of customers and let a lot of them that that have been vocal and complaining and and just hanging on by a thread. They had to say, you know what, we're just not a good fit for you um, and, and lost some revenue. But then they were able to more finely target the slightly larger companies, um, increase their conversion rate, and of course, increase their retention rate because they were throwing more resources behind them. They got their churn rate down, they got their retention up, uh, and they were able to close that round of funding. So there you go. That's real talk right there. I love it. I love it. it it's a little hard to do in real life, the way you articulated it so nicely. But it, if you do it, and if you have the courage to, to step through there and uh, and make that shift, it's yeah. it's really uh, much greener pastures at the other end. And this is something, when I worked at Vista, and we were turning around companies and growing them, right? I mean, this... It's the name of the game, right? Try to, you know, get 3x money over money, try to do it within three years. Everybody knows that. Mm -hmm. um, you're also trying to figure out which customers they shouldn't serve anymore mm -hmm. uh, and then double down on the ones you should because the lifetime value, the economics are so much better and you're able to scale a lot faster. And you also get smarter quicker. That's the other piece there that when you, when you get rid of that dilution, you get rid of those distractions, you get smarter quicker. 
And that's how you beat the competition. I love it, man. No, spot on, spot on. Well, very cool. I, you know, I, I think we could really go on for quite a long time and, and dig into this a lot more. Um, you know, Marcos, I really appreciate you being here. You're such a joy to talk to. Um, let me know any, any final thoughts or, and where can people uh, find you and, and find your work? Yeah, man. No, listen, I just, if I said it a few times already, right, don't be so afraid of, of approaching pricing, of making hard decisions and, and, and learning uh, through the model. Like if you go out, like you can get any pricing book you want. You can get the boring ones too. But if you want to get get mine and, and read up on some really great uh, frameworks and tips and just ways to get started, especially if you just don't have a lot of data or don't uh, really know where to go, uh, grab the book, go in there, read it, do something, get some information and get better at it. I'm easy to find. Um, Marcos Rivera, you can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, send me a note there on LinkedIn. You can also go to pricingio.com. We have a little form there. Come straight to my team and then my team will, will pull me in as needed. Easy stuff there. But overall, just uh, stop guessing and start mm -hmm. growing. Like do something and uh, any way you can, but just start learning and getting better. That's my big thing. And so thanks for having me out here, man. This was a lot of fun. Awesome, man. Likewise. Yes, yeah, so we'll put all those links in the show notes for anyone who's interested. Again, street pricing, a pricing playlist for hip leaders in B2B SaaS. Marcus Rivera, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me, man. That's it for this week's episode. Thank you so much for being here. If there's a challenge that you're dealing with in your tech startup that you'd like me to cover, or if you're an executive of a successful SaaS company and you'd like to be a guest on my show, or if you'd like to hear more about what I offer in the Chaos to Clarity Accelerator or my executive coaching program, reach out and connect with me at eric at fullcycleproduct.com. Thank you and I'll see you next week.